0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we say every single time, our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. I anticipate wrapping up this episode today. If not today, then next week at the latest. But I I suspect today. And uh, be ready for episodes 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. I haven't convinced myself I'm going to combine all eight of them into one big outline or not. Maybe just four of them. Uh, But the trials are coming up. And the trials before Caiaphas, before that the trial before Annas, uh, Peter's three denials. Uh, The trial before Pilate, the first trial to Pilate, the trial before Herod, the second trial before Pilate. These are all the next uh, episodes coming up. These are the events coming up in in this outline. As I said, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, even up to, I think, 33, 34, before he's mocked by the Roman soldiers and before he's led away to be crucified. So... um, Between now and next week, I'll decide exactly how much of that to lump together and uh, how much of it needs to be broken out into into separate outlines. But for today, we're still in episode 25 the betrayal, the arrest, and the desertion. And uh, Matthew chapter 26 is as good a place to start as any. We'll highlight a couple of things here, and then we need to get to Luke. There's some things that are unique to Luke's record in this arresting episode, and uh, things that are very vital particularly given the angelic conflict our congregation is presently under uh, and or the divine discipline our nation is presently under. We might want to have a consideration of what the Lord had to say related to the powers of darkness. So uh, we'll take a look at that today. Before we do, let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer to sanctify our time to consecrate our hearts before the Lord. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. And we thank You that the truth of Your Word is stabilizing. We thank You that when Your Word is studied legitimately, Father, faithfully, appropriately, that uh, doctrine transforms our thinking, Father. We're not tossed to and fro. We are stable, Father. And I just so rejoice in that. We've got folks that we're praying for, family members, friends, enemies in some cases, And Father, uh, they have no stability. And all we can do is is intercede, become intercessors, pray on their behalf, and pray on our own behalf, Father. Anytime we pray in these regards, we're looking to ourselves, lest we too be tempted. So Father, at this time, we thank You for truth. We thank You for the study. Thank You for life of Christ. Thank You for the example He set. How He embraced this stability for Himself. And it uh, equipped Him for the work of the cross. And I thank you for that. So bless our time today. Help us to receive this word implanted. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Alright. We are in main point six. The message of irony. And I think everyone here has been here in previous uh, Opportunities. There it is. Message of irony. I had the wrong number on that. Slide number nine. I thought it was slide number eight. All right. The message of irony. And for this, let's take a look at it in Matthew chapter 26, um, verses 55 and 56. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? <coughs> Every day. I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All right, so these are his words, what I'm calling the message of irony. Because the contrast between what's going on right here, right now, this very night, 600 soldiers perhaps, uh, weapons, lanterns, torches, Middle of the night, or at least late at night, okay? We don't know exactly what time, how long they stayed in the upper room, how long it took to to do all those things and depart in any event. Um, He says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? How ironic. What What a concept. What a fulfillment of the Scriptures. Again, here's the one that is going to be numbered with the transgressors. And he's marveling at how Scriptures are being fulfilled. And how these unbelievers who are serving the powers of darkness are still operating within the Father's overall plan. And God the Father's directive will is being achieved. God the Father's permissive will is being achieved. And God the Father's overruling will is being achieved. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. He is delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, we're told in Acts chapter 2. And so here we see it. And we see Jesus marveling. Have you come out with swords and clubs? You could even, uh, you know, understand a... (coughs) This is rhetorical, of course. He's not asking for a, a response on the part of the mobs. But it's just, oh, the wonder of it all. Like George Beverly Shea singing the wonder of it all. Imagine this. You've come out to arrest me as a robber. Can you imagine? All right. The arresting force played out a farce, <laughs> which is, you know, we're going to see more of it. it gets, the, the, the humor gets less funny uh, the next day when in their religiosity they don't want to cross the, the threshold of the, uh, of the praetorium uh, there because they want to keep themselves ceremonially pure to partake of Passover, <laughs> right? And so the farce just becomes more and more farcical. Uh, this night and the next day and, and all the rest. In fact, uh, even before the sun comes up, they hold illegal trials. They cannot, it was against their own law to convene a trial during the hours of darkness, and yet they did. And so now they have to stage a retrial once the sun comes up. Um, again, the farce is, uh, is something else. In this, an observer might think that a dangerous robber was being apprehended. This is what a, a third-party observer would, would have to assume. You know, you just, you see all these soldiers, you see the lanterns, you see the weapons, and uh, you think, wow, that's a lot of soldiers to arrest one guy, (laughs) right? I ponder that myself sometimes, and you you see 12 police cars on the side of the road with one car pulled over, you know, and Sharon says, wow, how dangerous must that guy be? And uh, I've had too many years in law enforcement, I figure it's just a slow night and the officers are bored, you know, people are coming from all kinds of places because there's nothing else going on and they're just bored. All right, the sergeant's supposed to keep that from happening because you, you don't want your people out of their territories. But anyway, an observer might think that dangerous robber was being apprehended, but here's the problem. There's not supposed to be any observers. <laughs> they picked this time and date to try to minimize the number of observers. When you're ashamed of what you're doing or when you have a fear of repercussions, what do you do? You get sneaky about it. If you're afraid of the consequences, you don't want somebody to find out. We know that they were afraid of the crowds during the day. They were afraid of the, of the people that were listening to his teaching. They thought he was a prophet. They, they were impressed by his teaching. They didn't want to stir up a riot during broad daylight where it would come to the attention of the Roman soldiers who would come and start massacring people. Alright, so what do they end up doing? They end up using the Roman soldiers themselves and they end up doing this at night and they end up trying to do this out of sight, out of mind. Alright, alright. And that's the nature of the adversary. That's how he operates. He operates in darkness. They love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And uh, the different aspects there. So this is why, again, it contributes to the to the irony of the whole circumstance, contributes to the whole farcical nature of the of the drama unfolding. And uh, why why go through the motions? Why why play out the drama? What are you who are you trying to fool? See, are they, are they fooling God? Well, maybe they think they are. Are they fooling themselves? Maybe they think they are. Maybe they're so afraid of what the alternative is that they're willing to play out the farce. See, and we see this every day. We see atheists every day that play out the, the Darwinian farce because intellectually they, they know there's it's a fraud, but they, they, they're terrified that there's a God who's going to judge them. And so they're much more comfortable living the farce of of Darwinian evolution or living the farce of whatever. Okay? We see this every day. Point B then daily public teaching provided plenty of arresting opportunities. So now we can go over to Luke, Luke 19. We'll be back in Matthew here in a moment, but let's uh, look at Luke 19 47 and 48. And this was his uh, pattern for this final week. It says uh, in verse 45, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. This is our lace terminology we studied last week. We did the word study on robbers last week. The lace And he was teaching daily in the temple. So he arrives on Palm Monday, Right? Remember we studied that, not Palm Sunday, Palm Monday he arrives. And uh, the children are singing Hosanna and singing the book of Psalms and they're laying down the palm branches and he's riding humbly on a colt. He's fulfilling Zechariah. All right. The, the, the parallelism of this is beautiful because on Monday he's fulfilling Zechariah on his triumphal entry. Tonight he's also fulfilling Zechariah when the disciples flee from him. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah. Okay. And they form bookends here on this, on this Passion Week from Triumphal Entry on Monday to Crucifixion Friday. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading man among the people were trying to destroy Him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging onto every word He said. All right, Including... The soldiers they sent in chapter seven, uh, John chapter seven, six months ago when he was there for the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, they're left with this conundrum. They're left with this conundrum. And so when when Judas shows up offering to hand him over and uh, getting off as cheaply as thirty pieces of silver, uh, you know they were happy about that because <laughs> they, they were already at a at a, a no win circumstance. All right, plenty of arresting opportunities and yet. Those were arresting opportunities that had a price they were not willing to pay. The uh, the shame that that would bring them in the eyes of the people, uh, the rejection in the eyes of the people. Okay, there were opportunities, but at what cost? At what cost? Okay, could they have done it? Sure, but they would have stirred up a riot, and the the cost was unthinkable in their minds. All right, point C then, and here we are going to go back to Matthew. Jesus challenged His disciples. Before I read this point again, let's let's look at verse 54, let's look at 56, and let's notice the difference between the two. Verse 54, He's talking to His disciples. Verse 56, He's talking to the unbelievers, the crowd. When He tells Peter to put the sword away, He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to My Father and He will at once put at My disposal more than twelve legions of angels? And again, that's possible. It's an opportunity. It's a rescue opportunity. But at what cost? Okay? And so it was unthinkable. And Jesus says, I can't do this. I can't call for the evacuation and the rescue. I've got to go to the cross. And he asked his disciples, how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? Which say that it must happen this way. He asked the disciples, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled? And that's the question that you would ask a disciple. You would ask a disciple. There's a difference if you're speaking to a disciple or you're speaking to an unbeliever. To the unbelievers, he doesn't ask them how will the Scriptures be fulfilled. He tells them the Scriptures will be fulfilled and you're part of it. (laughs) Okay? And you're part of it. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you do not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. So he asks the disciples, he tells the unbelievers. And that's important. So I spelled it out then in point C. Jesus challenged his disciples to explain how the Scriptures could be fulfilled. But he declared to the unbelievers that the Scriptures must be fulfilled. See the difference? See the difference? I got some puzzlement on this last week, and maybe it could be worded better. (laughs) Maybe I need to rewrite the point. But a challenge to explain. And that's a fruitful exercise. Okay, Now you can tell an unbeliever, we were talking about John 3.16 a moment ago, you could tell an unbeliever, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you tell them that, as you are proclaiming the gospel, as you are offering, uh, you know the, off, the grace offer of redemption and describing those things, but you're you're not asking them. Okay, now with a disciple, you may then ask, "Tell me how the Father loved the Son, and how the Son loved the Father, and tell me how that love works in our lives, and tell me how we." can love one another and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And and I can ask a disciple to explain the how. And I can ask a disciple to, to answer back with a comprehension, not only of this passage, but how it relates to this passage, how it relates to this passage, how it relates to this passage. You see the difference? And that is a very fruitful exercise for disciples, for believers under teaching, particularly for believers under teaching that are preparing to launch into their own ministry. As these guys were, this whole night in which he's betrayed, from from John 13, whatever that was, when Judas he said, "What you do, do quickly." Judas walks out, the door closes, and Jesus says, "Now is the Son of Man glorified." From that statement of the "Now is the Son of Man glorified," from that statement, all the way to to here, to the end of this, to, the, to his arrest, from the time they flee, everything has been spent, preparing these twelve. Preparing these eleven, twelve—I bet you Matthias was—they had to have been there. Preparing these twelve for their role as apostles in the church age. All right. So perhaps we may uh, this challenge to the disciples. Perhaps we might say, "Okay, this is true for all believers. Are there going to be degrees of distinctions?" Sure. You, you know, a babe who was just saved yesterday, we're not going to challenge them nearly as much to explain nearly as much, but we're going to start them on that pattern. Sure, we're going to start them on that pattern. We're going to start teaching them basic doctrines and then we're going to challenge them to explain back to us you know, how they're going to apply those doctrines. So the challenge to explain, it's a wonderful principle, and I think it's, it's valid throughout the church age. I think it's fruitful for a local church. The challenge to explain. I think it, it's what guarantees that your students are actually learning. Otherwise, you're just... You know, like a... I almost said, you know, a government school. or a, It happens in homeschool too. Okay, It happens in churches. Just because you're teaching something doesn't mean they learned it. Right? <laughs> There's a difference. And so, when you challenge the student to explain... What are you doing? You're validating that the information has been comprehended. You're, you're actually validating the, the uh, understanding and comprehension. You're actually um, helping that, uh, that understanding. Different aspects there. Alright. But with the unbelievers, there's no explanation. Asked for, it's just simply a statement. Okay. Why would I ask an unbeliever to describe for me the love of God? They don't have any capacity for that. But I'll tell them about the love of God. I'll tell them about how their sins have been paid for. Different things there. Finally then, here's what we've got to stress today. Point D. The hour and the power of darkness. Let's go back to Luke again. Luke 22, 53. The hour... And the power of darkness belong to the tools of evil. Luke 22, 53. Remember, it's not flesh and blood. It's rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. But the flesh and blood agents will be the tools. They will be the tools of the evil. The operatives, the agents. The hour and the power of darkness. There's two separate items there that I think in an advanced angelology in an advanced angelic conflict would be definitely worth expanding upon and and uh describing but the hour is a, is an opportune time it's a moment it's a season it's a it's a, it's a time frame it may not be a literal sixty minutes probably not it's probably just reference to an occasion this is somebody's finest hour World War two was churchill's finest hour and it lasted you know six years <laughs> okay uh, we say it's The hour. The hour has come. The time has come. The designated appointed season. And the power of darkness. So, having arrested him, let's see, back up. Again, the uh, message of irony. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour... And the power of darkness are yours. All those other hours weren't theirs. Nor were they his. He would say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. They tried to lay hold of him, but his hour had not yet come, we're told. He, he passed through their midst. And, uh, they tried to throw him off a cliff and he passed through their midst. Or so they tried to lay hold on him and they were not able because his hour had not yet come. But this is now the hour. And they're able to arrest Him because it's been given by the Father and only given by the Father agreed to by Jesus Christ. <laughs> he had he agreed to it. He had His victory in Gethsemane. He said, "Not nah, my will but Thine be done. He did not call the 10,000 angels or the 72,000 angels. This hour is theirs because the Father directed it and the Son agreed to it. This hour and the power of darkness. What is this power of darkness? Ephesians six and verse twelve, we start to see this. We understand these are the. It's motivational. It's energetic. Not only does it shape thinking, but it also um, feeds uh, the desires. Somebody took Ephesians out of my. Oh, there it is. Okay, Ephesians chapter six. What is the power of darkness? What kind of power does darkness have anyway? It has a lot of power in the spiritual realm. It's uh, magnified as an alternative to God's power. And it's, it's a sad imitation. It's a sad imitation. Anything Satan promotes as an alternative is a sad imitation. But, it is, but I think we would be wrong to deny that it has power. We don't do our kids any favors if we deny that there's a power to it. it. There is a power to it and it is real. There is pleasure to sin. It's a passing pleasure. Moses rejected the passing pleasures of sin, and we need to train our children to do that. But if we lie to them and tell them that it's not pleasurable, we're not doing them any favors. It is pleasurable. Sex feels great. All right? It's pleasurable. But at what cost? And what are the consequences? And what's the design? All right. So don't deny the pleasure, but understand the damage of the power when you're using the wrong power. Don't deny the power either. There's a huge power. If you don't understand that, then maybe you're still befuddled as to why an election went the way that it went a few days ago. There is a power at work. And there is a nation that's been given over. I'm convinced of that. All right. And I'm not saying that the Republican Party is any better either, mind you. Okay. <laughs> we had a choice of two unbelievers. What direction do you think this nation's going? Now, Ephesians 6 talks about this power. And it says, uh, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. That's an imperative. It's a present imperative. We're continually to be strengthened, passive voice in the Lord. So I'm not going to make myself strong. I'm going to receive His strength. Passive voice. Be strengthened in the Lord in the strength of His might. Don't use the power of darkness. It's the power of light. We're walking in the light. Okay. Put on the full armor of God. Now this is a daily decision we have to make. Getting dressed doesn't happen on, on its own. It's not an accident. Getting dressed is a conscious choice. Every item of clothing you put on is a conscious choice. Assuming you're older than a toddler, okay? <laughs> Infants and newborns, they, their parents dress them, okay? I get that. Or maybe uh, the extremely elderly have nurses that help them get dressed. But, but by and large, all right, by and large, for uh, adult sons of God the Father here, getting dressed is your volition at work and what you choose to put on. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The point is that we have stability. We're going to stand firm, and it doesn't matter what the scheme is, or the schemes plural. This is plural. There could be any number of things, and they may hit all at once. Doesn't matter. You're suited up in your full armor. You have stability. You're strengthened by His might. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not in the human realm. You know the human agents you're looking at. They're agents. They're tools. But they're operating in according to the, the designs of the adversary with his empowerment. Against the rulers, against the powers. There's four terms here that are all angelic. And sometimes they're used of elect angels, sometimes they're used of fallen angels. This is clearly a context that applies to the fallen angels. We're not in conflict with the elect angels. But some of the rulers stayed faithful and some of the rulers rebelled. Some of the powers stayed faithful and some of the powers rebelled. Some of the cosmos forces of this darkness. That's uh, the word for world there is cosmos. Cosmos forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, you realize um, if, if we only engage in the, in the earthly sphere and we don't engage in the heavenly sphere, what are we doing? They'd be like, well, we're only going to fight in Europe. We're not going to fight in the Pacific. Okay. World War II was a two-front war, two-theater war. We had the European theater, which technically also included Africa. <laughs> okay, we had the, the European and African theater, and then we had the Pacific theater. We fought on both. Well, what do we have? Well, what's the venue for it? It, it? Is here on Earth? It's where we exist. It's where we abide. It's where we sojourn. And yet, where's the conflict? Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do we engage in heavenly combat as well as earthly combat? All right. therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. By the way, we've got, coming up in chapter 12, I finally decided after we do the thorn in the flesh uh, doctrine of 2 Corinthians 12 is when we will stop and do a a developed... uh, Satanology, advanced age, angelology. And we'll give a pretty comprehensive defense of why demons are not fallen angels. Uh, who are the Nephilim and what, are the, what is the eternal destiny of of all of this as it gets put together. So stay tuned for that coming up in Second uh, Corinthians 12. Alright. Rulers and powers. Alright. Rulers and powers. Rulers and powers. We have the um, powers that be. <laughs> we have that as an idiom today, right? The powers that be. Well, what are those? What are those forces that are at work? What are the cultural forces at work? What is it that's driving pop culture? What forces that drive um, the attitudes of people today? This is it what we're talking about. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual forces. And you say, well, I don't... Some people don't think any of this is real. And yet we see it every day. And some things are inexplicable other than by spiritual reasons. Okay, I see some performers out there in pop culture. I can't tell you why they're popular. Not with earthly terms. There's no earthly reason why their music's not any good. Okay, <laughs> you know, If you're, if you're going to talk about meter and rhythm and tone and, 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 and pitch and key and everything that goes into music, that ain't it. But they make millions. Okay, they drive entire industries, and some of it is is um, you know it just it just it drives the culture, and it just drives me up a wall <laughs> in some respects. And then I calm down and say, well, Father's still in charge. Permissive will's letting this happen, but we see what these cosmos forces are about. Rulers, of course, is in the. Governance of uh, of a land of a locality that's, uh, that is with sovereignty and rulership, but world forces, cosmos forces of darkness. Okay, that's our entertainment industry, that's our music industry, that's our culture, that's our that's the attitude that shapes a population. And more and more, our population's attitude thinks that you and I are the problem. We're the ones that are out of place, and and they're right. As far as the cosmos that that is suited to them, they're absolutely right. But still we want to have individual mercy on each human being we come encounter because they're just simply a tool. And perhaps God will have mercy on them. We can snatch another brand from the fire. We can uh, proclaim a gospel and the the veil of darkness can be pierced and a lost soul can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And uh, rather than lament the whole process, we can be thankful that the darker this world gets, our light just shines that much brighter. Okay? And if I'm still, you know, if I'm the, if I'm the last person on planet Earth that's never smoked a marijuana cigarette, then okay, I'm the last person on planet Earth. Maybe me and my children. <laughs> okay? Because I'm starting to wonder. I'm starting to wonder. And doesn't it bother you? My home state just legalized gay marriage and dope marijuana. You know? And a friend I grew up with said, That's just the way the world works. We finally get pot legalized and Twinkies go out of business. Anyway. All right. Somebody got that. Okay. Now, the thing to remember, though, the thing to remember, this can only happen within God the Father's permissive will. If the hour and the darkness are yours, why is that? Because God the Father is allowing it to happen. It, he is incorporating it within His overall design. John 1911, acts 2:23. There's so many other passages we can turn to for this, but including the one we just read there, the hour and the darkness are yours, the hour and the darkness. All right, John 19:11. We'll have this coming up in uh, one of his trials. Pilate is uh, questioning him and he's not liking some of these answers and he's growing more afraid. In verse 8, he goes back into the praetorium again says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, do, uh, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority? Now interestingly enough, the rulers and authorities, we got the same vocabulary for the fallen angels that run this planet as we have for the, the general word authority that he says he has here. I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me, no power over me, no sovereignty, unless it had been given you from above. The Father directed it or permitted it and Jesus agreed to it. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And he still going to have, have a sin. He has a part to play in this and the condemnation, but the Jews is greater. The ones that delivered him to Pilate. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him and so forth. But the principle there comes out of verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. When the hour and the darkness are Satan's, it's because God the Father has so determined. There's a day coming when the church is raptured, when the restraint is lifted, and globally Satan will have no more restraints. Globally Satan will empower his Antichrist. I believe he will birth his Antichrist. He will procreate with a human woman and Antichrist will be birthed into this world because globally the restraint is lifted and Satan will have free reign. He'll, he'll be able to do miracles. His begotten son will be able to you know stage his own phony resurrection. And the whole world is going to be just all oh, amazed. The culture will be driven towards this great hero. Acts two twenty three the other passage here. Acts two twenty three, men of Israel, verse twenty two, men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter's first sermon. Okay, takes a stand with the eleven in verse fourteen, and uh, has a message from fourteen through twenty one, and then he expands it. To men of Israel, listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. As I say, when the deception comes upon this world, Satan will attest to his man through miracles and wonders and signs, which God will permit Satan to perform in their midst. This man, delivered over by not the Jews, not the Sanhedrin, not the Romans, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of a God, of godless men. There's tools and implements there, but ultimately God is in control. This can only happen within God the Father's permissive will. The Father directed it. Jesus agreed to it. So the hour and the power of darkness are theirs. We need to have our eyes open. As our congregations under attack, and now there's Google criticism on the with, on the internet. <laughs> All right, or uh, some kind of a cult? I hate women. Okay, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. The funniest cult I ever heard of in my life. When people are so free to go. <laughs> in any event, should we expect more of that? Is this ours theirs? is the power of darkness theirs are we entering into a stage of of uh, church history uh, you know whereby in the unfolding of the uh, our nation has been so preserved for so long are, do we have a, a time of persecution coming up a time of martyrdom coming up are we just seeing early early clues of this that our hedge has been lowered things to consider Alright, which gets us then to point 7. We have 7 and 8, which wraps this up. The fleeing disciples fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and the upper room discourse, leaving the Son and the Father alone to accomplish their work. Point 7. The fleeing disciples fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies That's Zechariah 13.7 and the Upper Room Discourse, Matthew 26, Mark fourteen twenty seven, John sixteen thirty two. Leaving the Son and Father alone to accomplish their work. John 16, 32. 2 Corinthians 5:19, John 14:31, John 17:23 through26. that's a long chain, but we've got 22 minutes now to wrap this up for the rest of the to, to wrap up this outline. Try to make a connection more often than not. I, I try to. I did it in Ukraine with the students over there and it was marvelously effective. Um, try to get them thinking in terms of the Old Testament prophets plus Jesus. Okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, the Twelve, Jesus. Okay. Particularly the Olivet Discourse, but including the Sermon on the Mount, um, other prophetic addresses, the Olivet Discourse. By recognizing that Jesus was an Old Testament prophet, <laughs> all right. then what we can do is we can take Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the Twelve Minor Prophets and Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And we can have a functional eschatology looking forward to the tribulation of Israel, looking forward to the unfolding of the Father's plan as it relates to Israel. And then we we see how the Apostle John wrapped up the New Testament in Revelation one, two, and three, and then he wraps up the Old Testament in Revelation six through nineteen. The tribulation portion of the book of Revelation, Revelation 6 through 19, it goes with the Old Testament prophets and it goes with all of it discourse. So, here are the disciples. They're fleeing. Well, this was to fulfill Scripture (laughs) the Scripture that Jesus taught, as well as His own Scripture, His own recorded messages in the, uh, the upper room discourse. So as I look at it here, uh, John, Matthew, and Mark are the same. Uh, you know, Scripture must be fulfilled. So all the disciples left him and fled. Uh, John sixteen thirty-two, which leads right into thirty, yeah, thirty-two. Let's look at that one. He promised him. Do you now believe? an hour is coming and has already come. We're here. This is the night. We're going to leave this upper room. In fact, in chapter 16, he's walking. They've left the upper room. They left the upper room uh, at the end of chapter 14, right? Yeah, come, let us go from here. So he's walking in 15 and 16. He's on his way to the garden where the arrest will take place, where the scattering will take place. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home. told you this in the upper room. told you this. Zechariah told you this. When Peter said, Far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to thee. What are you talking about, Satan? Get behind me. Scripture says this has to happen. Each to his own home and leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. And notice what's going to happen. The disciples are going to scatter. But there's work to be done between the Father and the Son. There's work to be done. Jesus Christ is going to offer Himself. God the Father is going to apply the wrath. Going to impute those sins to Christ's account. Here's something you can think about. The Son offers Himself. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice, he's the altar, the altar of his soul. But he's offering it to the Father. And the Father reckons our sins to Christ's account. And the Father pours forth his wrath, the wrath bearing of Christ. Okay? Now, who actually does the judgment? Is it the Father or is it the Son? Typically, Orthodox, no one even thinks about it. Well, obviously the Father did. The Father did. But the Father gave all judgment to the Son. And so something we're going to have to ponder as we approach Calvary. Yes, the Father imputed the sin. Yes, the Father poured forth his wrath in satisfaction of righteousness and justice. But who actually pronounced the judgment? Did the father do that or did the son do that as delegated by the father? And then in doing so, then was the father well pleased. Okay. Which is it that better suits with what we looked at in Isaiah 53? About by his knowledge shall my servant, the righteous one, redeem the many. Okay. We'll talk about the work that the the son did. But fundamentally, guess what? The answer is both because I and the Father are one. And the answer is both because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, God was at work in Jesus to willing to do of his good pleasure, like God's at work in us to willing to do of his good pleasure. So, at the end of the day, it's kind of a trick question. The fleeing disciples fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and the upper room discourse. which is a prophecy. Okay? Jesus gave some short-term prophecies. You know, the rooster's going to crow three times, Peter. But before that, you're going to deny me. And uh, I'm sorry, the rooster's going to crow. And before that, you're going to deny me three times. There we go. (laughs) Get it right. And uh, that's a short-term prophecy. It happens before the sun comes up. But it is a prophecy, and it does happen. And the short-term prophecy of the upper room discourse ought to encourage them about the long-term prophecies related to all of it and everything else that Jesus spoke. Alright, John 16.32, we already read. 2 Corinthians 5.19. I mentioned, but we didn't read it. 2 Corinthians 5.19. See, there's work to be done, and Peter and the twelve can have no part in it. It's something between the Father and the Son. This is why we need to not recognize anyone According to the flesh. Have your spiritual eyes open. Be operating in the heavenly dimension. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. If anyone is in Christ, He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself. Notice, God the Father is the active agent doing the activity of the verb. God the Father reconciled us to Himself through Christ. God the Father was the ultimate one doing it. Christ was his agent in the world. Okay? He came to this world to reveal the Father. He came to the world to know uh, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. All right. And he also committed to us, gave to us the word of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. And guess what? He still is. God is the Father is in Christ. And where are you? In Christ. And so the ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us is at its core, is the Father working through us in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God the Father were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So the Father and the Son have work to do. The disciples flee, leaving the Son and the Father alone to accomplish their work. John 14.31 Backing up a little bit. John fourteen thirty one. You taught this not too long ago. It's in the same upper room discourse we've been dealing with now for months. Um, promising them of the coming Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is our bequest. It's our uh, inheritance that we have. We get to operate in the church age with this peace, regardless of uh, how the conflict rages around us. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved Me and you don't, not like you're going to, if you loved Me, you would have rejoiced, but you didn't. You grieved. You sorrowed. Remember, the disciples didn't like this message. Because they didn't love him the way that they're going to love him in the church age. <coughs> you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The church age is so awesomely advantageous, so powerful, because we have an advocate seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe and increase their faith as these things are fulfilled. His message in the upper room needs to be combined with the Old Testament prophets. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler... Here's a passage we'll have in our advanced angelology. The ruler of this cosmos is coming and he has nothing in me but so that the world may know that I love the Father. What's he accomplishing when the disciples flee? He is giving thee once and for all testimony for all mankind, for all angels, elect and fallen and everybody. The entire moral realm of existence will be will be, have the undeniable testimony that Jesus Christ loves God the Father. The cross proves it. That Jesus Christ loves God the Father. So the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. He's got work to do. See, and I've heard some of the ugliest things, the, the mockers... They, they think the the cross is something stupid. They think that, you know, God is a moron for coming and then killing himself. You know, and they they they, they mock it, they scorn it, they ridicule, and, and and they use it. Just it's heartbreaking to listen to that filth. You just want to stop them, or I do. I just want to stop them and say, Do you really comprehend what's happening here? The demonstration that the Father had for the world, the demonstration the Son had for the Father. Do you understand this? Alright, and then 17.23-26 in his high priestly prayer. The last thing he has to say before he crosses into the, the ravine Kidron and awaits his arrest. His last spoken prayer that the disciples were privy to. It says, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as You have loved Me. So there's more things that are known not only at the cross, because of the cross, there are things that are now known to the cosmos through the Bride of Christ, through the church, through those that are in Christ and through Christ in the Father. I in them and you in Me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that You sent Me. Apostello. That's why He's the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. And love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have whom you have given me—that's why you can't lose your salvation. You're a gift from the Father to the Son. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. And that's not just well someday when they eventually die and come to heaven. This is right here, right now, today, all day, every day. Be occupied with Christ. Set your mind on the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. But until then, keep setting your mind on the things above. Be with Him. Be with Him today. Behold His glory today, which you have given Me. For you love Me before the foundation of the world. A righteous Father, though the world has not known You, yet I have known You. These have known that You sent Me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known. And will make it known. Boy, once Pentecost comes, they receive the Holy Spirit. They start gaining the full understanding of these things. I imagine on the night they first heard this, their heads just spun. They didn't understand a fraction of it. I have made it known to them. I will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them you know Israel didn't have the command to love one another we do we do because we're in Christ Christ proved his love at the cross oh there's so much to this all right the fleeing disciples fulfilled old testament prophecies the upper room and the upper room discourse Leaving the Son and the Father alone to accomplish their work. The last one to flee is this naked young man, likely the author himself. Mark 14, 51, and 52. The naked young man is likely the author himself. Point eight. He is the last one to flee after the disciples flee. He was not one of the disciples. The naked young man is likely the author of his office. Not recorded in Matthew, not recorded in Mark, I mean, in Luke, not recorded in John, although John was there. He didn't record this part of it. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. After which, verse 51. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. So he didn't take off running like the disciples did. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. All right? And do we want more detail than that? Do we want more information than that? Tough. <laughs> Too bad. Uh, because in verse fifty-three, we're on to a different scene. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and we never do the narrative of this text, and no other Bible verse, and no other place does it. Do we ever find out who this naked guy was? Okay, and so it's it's a logical conclusion. It's a I think it's a biblical conclusion. It's kind of like uh, we find there's there's unique expressions in John because he won't refer to himself by name. So he calls you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved and he has you know, the other disciple. He has little gimmicks, little, little uh, not gimmicks, but uh, yeah, gimmicks. It's a writing technique. okay? little uh, uh, writing methodology in order to refer to himself without referring to himself. Okay? Something similar here, I think is the case as far as who this guy is and why he's there and why he's following and trust me, there's no shortage of speculation out there from the church fathers on <laughs> okay um, but it's it's pretty well accepted the the most common of the traditions and this is Mark himself. this is the only place that he appears anywhere in his own gospel, and so he writes it. he puts his own little connection here with the the one place where he came almost face to face with with Jesus all right. We will resume this one week from today. We'll come back for episode 26 at a minimum. Possibly 26, 27, 28, 29, as it were. Um, I'll decide how much we're going to compress. But he's going to have a first trial he's going to have before Annas. Kind of like a pre-trial before he has the uh, trial before Caiaphas. And how do we have two high priests anyway? And what's the relationship between Annas and Caiaphas? And who are these guys? Um, Wonderful grace notes material on this, and I'll steal as much as I can <laughs> you know, sort of reinventing the wheel. And uh we'll uh we'll outline this all for you. And uh be prepared to understand it's it's remarkable how the trials were illegal under Jewish law. And not only that, but he was innocent under Jewish law. They couldn't find any guilt until malicious witnesses came forward who themselves should have been stoned for their false witness. Um and then he was innocent under Roman law. He'd done nothing that violated any statute of, of Roman governance. Ultimately speaking, he was crucified just because. They wanted him crucified under both Jewish and Roman law. And uh, we'll deal with that. So, you know, if you have to deal with an injustice in your life and things aren't right, well, yeah, that's the way it works. It's a fallen world. The God of all justice will make things right, but not until our Savior returns. All right? Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for the example of our Savior. And if we ever have a time that that you call for our arrest, our imprisonment, Father, uh, who are we that we should not suffer? We're not better than our master. Father, if he was so treated, so we should expect that we're not immune or uh, entitled to avoid such things. Paul was in prison times without number. Father, and he was scourged. He was beaten. He was stoned. Father, that's the pattern. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And uh, if, our, if our land has had a, a permissive will, uh, exception to the rule all these many, many years, uh, the rule is still the rule. And uh, persecution may be in store for us coming up. I pray that believers will, uh, will wake up and get serious about their discipleship. They will get serious about studying the whole council, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I pray that they would stop tolerating the light and fuzzy pastors that are out there. And start holding their pastor's feet to the fire and say, "Teach us the meat, dig it out, feed us." And I do thank you that there are such faithful men. That uh, they're not all uh, they're not all gone, Father. There are faithful men, and I thank you for that. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.